All right, folks, it uh, looks like we've got our guest on the line. We have on the air with us uh, Stefan Molyneux. He is a, he's been fascinated by philosophy, particularly moral theories, since his mid-teens. He left his career as a software entrepreneur and executive to pursue philosophy full-time through his work at Free Domain Radio, and you can find that website at freedomainradio.com. Good evening, Stefan. Good evening. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. It is weird to be talking to you firsthand where I've heard your voice so many times on your podcasts and videos. Right. I, I imagine that by this time it's probably haunting your very dreams. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I must admit the first time I heard one of your videos, uh, I was kind of off-put by the accents being a, I don't know, being a southerner. But uh, it grew on me, and especially the content of your work at freedomonradio.com. I'd like to uh, preface, uh, you know, uh, interview by saying that uh, I started off as a minarchist, I guess, getting in the freedom movement. I was a strict constitutionalist. and uh, But as I began to explore and, and research and so forth, I began to discover that the Constitution of the U.S. was not such a great document. It was, it was conceived in secret as a, a document of compromise. And in fact, the greatest thing about it, which is the Bill of Rights, wasn't even in, in the Constitution. It came afterwards. Exactly. It was, it was one of the selling points. And Later, reading uh, Leisinger Spooner, I came to realize that as a piece of paper, it had absolutely no bearing on what our rights are or how we should you know, conduct a society. So, I mean, I started out a strict constitutionalist. I thought that was it. This is it. This is the ultimate truth. I never thought I would find myself, frankly, and I hesitate to say this word, an anarchist, which I basically am. I just hate to use the word because it's such a loaded term. It's, it's a negative term. In fact, I think its first usage was negative. It's been demonized. Yeah. Over and over, they just drag anarchism through the mud. Mm-hmm. It's an easy candidate. Well, I mean, the only anarchists you see in the news are the guys with the uh, the black ski masks breaking into Starbucks. Breaking windows <laughs> and blowing up cars. Yeah. Do, you, uh, do you think the, the word can be saved, Stefan? I, I, I think it can be saved, but it certainly can't be saved by pretending... It, I can't save it by pretending that I'm not what I am, right? So it, I used to, people have said, well, use the term voluntarist or uh, anti-violence or something like that. But the problem is, as soon as I start describing my position, my advocacy of a society without a state, people say, well, isn't that just anarchism? And I'm either going to fudge that and then start to look all kinds of creepy up front, or I just say, well, yeah, that's a word that is used to describe yeah. somebody who is consistent with the non-aggression principle. If you don't believe that human beings have the right to initiate force against each other, whether you like it or not, you are dragged to the edge of a voluntary stateless society or an anarchic society, because government, by its very definition, is a monopoly of individuals who claim the moral and legal right to initiate force against others for the sake of the social good. No matter whether you believe or not in that social good, it's still not moral for people to use force to solve social problems, and that's where you have to be if you're consistent with the principles. The argument that, uh, that you pose to say that, well, if you, uh, if you don't want the criminals, you know, the, or whatever, that 2% of the violent population, uh, you know, that, that everyone's so worried about in anarchy, why do you give them a monopoly of force where they're not going to get prosecuted for being violent people? You give them shelter. It's, it is a tragedy, right? I mean, because people say we need a government because there are evil people in society. And I, I'm not naive. I'm not a utopian. I certainly accept that there are evil people in society. And it's the very prevalence of evil people that makes a government such a suicidal institution in the long run because evil people are drawn to power. Evil people are drawn to the government. There is a minority of evil people, which is why you can't have a government because that's the first place they're going to go. 
Yeah, it's only the unsuccessful, the, the dopey evil people who are in prison. The, the really smart, successful ones, they're running the country. They seek office. Yes. The, exactly. the petty criminals, yeah, they're the ones that get wrapped up in the, in the bureaucracy and the, in the petty crimes. Well, what you see is you got the petty criminal who robs a liquor store. Yeah, he's in prison, but you got the huge criminals, and they're killing millions of people with our money. I with mean, the government's rubber stamp on it. Exactly. There's an old story. Uh, there's an old story that's sometimes talked about where, uh, somewhere in the ancient world, uh, a um, uh, an emperor catches a pirate, and he says, uh, "You know, it's really bad to be a pirate. You shouldn't be a pirate." And he's like, "But you're just the pirate who won. So instead of being called a pirate, you're called the captain of the navy." And that I think is a fairly accurate representation. He's one of the great pirates. Now, most of our audience, they're, I, would say, I would say that the vast majority of our uh, audience, they're, they're going to be minarchists, I would say, I would say constitutionalists. And I constantly get in friendly debates with, with my friends, and who, frankly, they, they cannot see that we, still, that we can do without at least one small government to protect the Bill of Rights. They think sure. we need a government to protect our rights. Sure. Um, what would be a valid counter to that? Well, I wish it were true. Uh, I really wish it were true. A, a government of whatever size is something that we're all so familiar with. We grew up with it. That almost every country in the world has a government. Almost every country throughout history has had a government, though it's not always the case. So it's just something that we're familiar with. And my, one of my counter arguments is to say, well, you, you have to think from principles. You can't just think from what is habitual or familiar. So uh, people say, well, we're never going to have a society without a government. Well, first, there have been uh, in the past and very successful societies as well. But more importantly, that exact same argument could be used about slavery prior to the 19th century, right? You could say, well, no society in history has ever existed without slaves, and therefore it's impossible. Well, no, it is possible if you think that all men are created equal, then of course you have to oppose slavery. If you think that violence is a bad way to solve social problems, and I think the evidence is fast accumulating both in America and in Europe these days, at least we don't have people pointing to European socialism as the way forward now that its birth rate is plummeting and its debt is, is accelerating. We have to think in terms of principles and morals and ethics when it comes to making decisions about society. The fact that we're comfortable with the idea of a government does not mean that the idea of the government is moral or right. And I think that now we're at the tail end of seeing how impractical the execution of a government is, how we went from the very smallest possible government in history, which was the American government in the late 18th century, that has transformed itself in a little over 200 years from the very smallest government that you could imagine, the very uh, government that everybody could dream of as the perfect experiment in, experiment in minarchism, that has now mutated in this horrible Elvis Presley manner into the very largest most well-armed, most powerful, most destructive government in many ways that has ever existed with 700 military bases, which has been responsible for tens of millions of deaths around the world. So if the very smallest government that was designed by, by the most brilliant minds of the entire Enlightenment and the Renaissance, if the very smallest government has mutated into the very largest and most powerful government, we have to at least start to question the theory of statism because this is a laboratory experiment of something which was supposed to heal turning into something that has swollen into such a bloated and power-soaked monstrosity that anybody who's not questioning the theory of government right now needs to shake their head and look at the facts again. And it's your argument that the very small, small size of the state back in the 
days after the American Revolution, and when we had the perfect monarchy, that basically created, it's not an aberration, it created the monster we have today. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's right. And it's not just the American government. The Roman government started on the principle of free trade and then turned into an empire which destroyed itself. The British government started out on the principle of free trade, turned itself into an empire that nearly destroyed itself in the 20th century and is trying to finish the job off now with, with socialism. Uh, so it's not just the American. I don't want to sort of point out America as a singular example of this, but the, the very brief argument is that when you have a small government, you have an excess of liberty. You have property rights, you have free trade, you have private currencies, you have all of the fertilizer, in a sense, to grow enormous wealth. And we saw that in the 19th century uh, in, uh, in Western Europe and in America and Canada and um, uh, Australia and the, most of the colonies. What happens then when you have a small government and property rights and free trade is you get a huge growth in wealth. Because people are more efficient, the, the price uh, mechanism allocates resources very efficiently, so you get massive increases in wealth. The moment you get massive increases in wealth, you get massive increases in taxation. And you can see this, of course, in the 19th, after the 19th century, governments all began to take over public schools. Uh, they began to create their own fiat currency, and they would no longer allow you to compete in terms of currency. You start to see national debts. You start to see the income tax. You start to see sales taxes begin to emerge. As the wealth grows because of a small government, governments themselves hook into that wealth and grow even faster than the wealth does to the point where they overwhelm like a cancer. They grow and then they overwhelm the body politic. And that seems to have happened over and over. I'm sorry? He was saying that they kill off the host. The cancer eventually kills off the host. Well, I think we can see that uh, happening now. What are you guys heading towards? Is it a trillion dollar deficit at the moment? It's about to uh, surpass the GDP. It's, it's almost there. Yeah, I mean, here we have a system that was founded on no taxation without representation, and you all are taxing the unborn. I mean, two generations, three generations down from now, they'll be staring down the muzzle of this debt. And this is what happens when you have a government sitting on top of the wealth-generating capacities of the free market, is it grows far faster than the free market and kills it off. Absolutely. Well, and that's one of the videos, I think, that, that one of the first ones that I ever uh, saw of yours. We're coming up on break here in just a moment. But, yeah, one of the first videos I saw where it says that we are the death, you know, and, and that's what really, you know, drew my attention to your work, you know, because, you know, here we are. We're showing that you were showing that it's future generations that are actually getting, you know, acquiring this debt. And what are we doing to, you know, how are we going to answer them? What did you do to stop our enslavement? Um, we're going to be back on the other side of this break, folks. We're speaking tonight with Stephen Molyneux from FreedomainRadio.com. Uh, be sure and stay tuned. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Oklahoma on the Rural Law Radio Network. Be sure and check out the website, RadioFreeOklahoma.net and RuleOfLawRadio.com. We're speaking this evening with Stephen Molyneux from freedomainradio.com. Be sure and uh, log into his site and check it out. There is a, a ton of information on there. I mean, you can you could be on there for months and not not cover all of it. Oh yeah, it's, if you want to learn more, definitely go to freedomainradio.com. There's podcasts, videos. I mean, I, I listen to that stuff all the time. Part of what I, I've gone, you know, my life experience has been that you know I go through transitional worldviews, transitional philosophies. And, you know, every time I, I, I get, you know, really entrenched in one, I say, okay, this is it. I've, my worldview is congruent, and, you know, I, I, I finally got it. And then, some, then I'll see 
something else, you know, a little little chip in the paint, and I'll 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 chip away at it, and I see that there's okay, there's a whole other level, you know, and that's that's what I like about uh, Freedom Inc. Radio is that you know it really introduces you to uh, uh, you know this philosophy in in a way that I think is really easy to assimilate. I think uh, you have a good point. One one way I came to this was I wanted to make everything I, I believed and, and thought was a principle. I wanted it to be right and correct. I don't want to leave anything undone or just, I'm not going to think about that because I can't figure it out. I wanted to make it right, and that led me more and more towards voluntarism and towards Stefan Molyneux's work. And um, I don't know, just how we have, we have a lot of listeners who are involved in politics and so forth. I mean, I want, one thing I want to get to, we only have about 40 minutes left, I want to get to, and we'll cover other subjects, of course, is, is some kind of how do you talk to people who are, you know, in our mindset and, you know, and you think, you know, they're, they're on our side, but uh, they just can't see the fact that we, we need at least one small state, one small level of kidnapping and murder to keep everything in line. Well, and, and I'm going to uh, go ahead and, and, and put this out there. I think that we have a anarchist with us this evening. A, a, That's a right. Staunch. I do call myself a libertarian in regular conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. I'll admit <laughs> Right. So what can we do to convince, convince our friend Bobby? Well, look, the, the first thing that I would say is that I, I have a great deal of respect for people who are working very hard in the political arena for freedom. I mean, it is, it is a tough slog to be out there and uh, campaigning and knocking on doors and handing out pamphlets. It's a lot of work. And I, I just first want to say that I, I really respect people who are doing that. That having been said... I think that one of the things that libertarians criticize about government is they say, look, you have this mandate to end the war on drugs. You have this mandate to end poverty, to end illiteracy, to do all of these fantastic things. And the government never achieves it. And it never questions why. And the one thing that I would say is I think we need to take that same light that we shine on government and we need to shine it on ourselves, particularly our own political activism. Classical liberalism, libertarianism has been cooking around the Western philosophy, philosophical scene and political scene for over 150 years. And during that 150 years, when you think of the countless, literally countless hours and you know, probably hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent trying to advance the cause of freedom, the government has continued to grow and grow and grow and grow. And I think libertarians at least, at least need to say, look, if I criticize the government for not being self-critical about achieving its aims, I also need to apply that same standard to myself. I have some theories as to why political action won't work. I don't believe that political action will work. But I think that in the absence of an alternative, people fight off their own despair about the future by Im involving themselves in politics. Like, if I don't know, if like, let's say I'm lost in the ocean somewhere and I don't know which way to go, I'm going to start swimming somewhere. Because I know that if I stay there, I'm just going to drown or get eaten by a shark or something. I think in the absence of alternatives, people say to themselves, well, what is it that, uh, that I can achieve to actually bring the cause of freedom forward? If the only thing they can think of is politics, then that's what they're going to do. Uh, and I think that that's not the way that it's going to work. I think that the way that we move forward as a society towards freedom is by developing freedom with our own personal lives, by living lives of shining integrity and, and you know, virtue as best as we can within our own lives. I think that we need to uh, teach, uh, teach our kids 
uh, about freedom, there's no way to use the political process that I can see or that has ever worked. You can't use the political process to control the political process because the political process is designed to unjustly reallocate money from the productive to the unproductive. And trying to get that to respond to some virtuous thing is like trying to get the mafia. It's like trying to turn the mafia into a charity organization. It's just not going to work no matter how much you beg, plead, and, and, uh, and uh, protest. Well, you see people turning to the government for some kind of moral compass, like expecting the government to act in a moral way. And that's just uh, the government is force. It is the, is the use of force. It's a monopoly of force, frankly. And uh, expecting the government to act in a moral way, I think, is when you look at it, is ludicrous. Well, and, you know, there, there's such a move right now to, about, you know, restoring the Constitution. You know, and I mean, I've been right there in the trenches, you know, with that, that movement. But, you know, what was it, uh, Ben Eric, uh, like we were saying, uh, hold the Constitution up to a freight train that's moving at you and see, you know, see how much it protects you. <laughs> right. Right. You know, I mean, there's, there, there's, there's a reality to this that, you know, I think it's hard for us to, to face. It's just, it's so, it's, it's so destructive, so horrible to actually face it. It's, um, it's tough to do. Yeah, and the Constitution doesn't defend your rights. You defend your rights. That's been the hardest thing for me to, to accept over the, the last year is the fact that that this country no longer operates under the Constitution. Constitution yeah. Um, I, I just, you know, again, I was taught in government schools. It was drilled into my, into my mind that, you know, oh, you know, you've got a Constitution. This is how it's law. Yeah. yeah they the, don't talk about the backroom deals. Exactly. But uh, going back to those solutions, uh, which Stefan was talking about, uh, focusing inward more than outward, uh, I think I can relate to that. Um, you know, just... You know, freedom has to start on an individual level. It's an individual right. Well, that's part of, you know, the weird change process. Be the change you want to see in the world. And that's what I've said. This is an internal process. You know, mm -hmm. the external change comes from in, an internal change. You can only, you can't change the world, but you can change yourself. And politics, frankly, is a dirty, dirty business. I mean, what good has ever come of politics? Expecting politics to change things. I mean, like Stefan said, you know, what example do we have where it happens? Yeah, well, and if you just look at just look at what happened recently with uh, with Rand Paul, right, where he had some fairly sensible comments about the limitations of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and they basically fed him backwards through a blender slowly. I mean, the media just completely distorted everything that he was saying, charged him with racism, smeared his name. I mean, uh, it, they're a bunch of jackals in many ways, and I just don't think that that's the route that we're going to. Um, we're going to achieve uh, freedom. The, the, the only fundamental freedom, philosophically, I think this is important to emphasize, the only fundamental freedom that we have is freedom from illusion. And that's how we're going. The government is an illusion. The government does not exist. The government is not a thing like a tree or a car. The government is a belief. The government is an ideology. The government is a kind of philosophy. I mean, it's a pretty nasty philosophy, but it is not a thing. It is a concept. And if we're going to free ourselves from illusion, we need to free ourselves from the idea of a government because the government doesn't exist. It's just a bunch of people in costumes with guns running around telling people what to do. But we need to also, we also need to free ourselves from the illusion that we can turn an institution that is based on immorality and force towards virtue. Uh, I made the argument some time back to Ron Paul supporters to say, look, don't start with the federal government, infiltrate the mafia and try and turn it into the United Way. Infiltrate uh, some local go uh, government union and try and turn it into a free market advocating organization that withdraws all its privileges. Those things are much easier to do than turning around the most mightily armed government in the history of mankind. But of course, people don't want to 
do that because they know it's going to fail. And that's how we know it's going to fail in politics as well. Well, in absence of governments, what would we have? Well, in the absence of government, we would have exactly what we have in our personal lives, but larger, right? I mean, there's no government agency that says you have to marry this person. There's no government agency in, in the world that we live in right now that says you have to have this job. I mean, if I don't, if, you know, when I would go for a job interview, if I didn't get the job, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't threaten to, I don't know, drive by the guy's house and strangle his cat. I mean, that was just voluntary. We all live a stateless society, a governmentless society. Most of us live that every single day. Uh, if people don't want to listen to my podcast, they don't have to. If I don't want to go and buy from my local grocer, I don't have to. If I want to go and buy a suit from so-and-so, I can go and do that. We do all of this without well, the government telling us what to do. And that and we live now in now people are starting to become uh, very aware because of the Internet that the police don't work to protect them at all. I mean, anytime you need them, you call, they show up two hours later. You know, but now, you know, if you, you know, give them an opportunity to generate some revenue, they work for the corporation, and that's the corporation's job is to, you know, create money or, or you know, generate revenue. Right, and, and now, they don't now, serve us. They don't protect and serve us. Well, yeah, they, they, to serve and protect is the motto, but we think it's us, but it's it's not really. It's it's some other group of people entirely. But, um, but so in the absence of a government, we would have uh, private organizations that would supply security and negotiate contracts and so on, and you would they would be voluntary. And people say, well, they would just turn into another government. But if you think like an entrepreneur, which I assume you guys being on the radio are pretty much in that category, I've certainly lived that lifestyle. If you are providing private security for people or private uh, contract negotiation uh, uh, agencies for people, and if they're concerned about you turning into the government, all you have to do is say, listen, we swear up and down that we're never going to accumulate guns. You can get third parties to come in. If anybody ever finds us accumulating guns, we will pay you $10 million. And like you just find ways to calm people's fears. The government doesn't have really any incentive to do that because they get their money in obedience at the point of a gun. But a private company is going to have to win over customers by, by dealing with their fears, allaying their concerns and making sure that it provides the best and most efficient protection of property. I mean, it's just silly things well, popped in into my head. Like that, you, would, you would actually have them, you know, to where they have to uh, respect the, the people in that area. We're already seeing where, you know, our local police forces have become federalized now. They no longer, you know, support the local community. You know, they're, they're getting their money from the federal government. Therefore, that's where their allegiance is, you know. Right. And if, I think if you have a private force, you know, they would be obligated to, uh, to adhere to, to the regulations of the people that were paying them. But uh, we're coming up on break now, and um, folks, you're listening to Radio Free Oklahoma, and we're speaking this uh, evening with Stephen Molyneux from FreedomLaneRadio.com. Welcome back to Radio Free Oklahoma. We're talking to Stephen Molyneux at FreedomLaneRadio.com. If you want to call in with a question or comment, you welcome your input. The phone number is 512-646-1984. I repeat, 512-646-1984. 1984. Uh, Stefan Molyneux is uh, one of the proponents, career proponents of voluntarism on the, on the web in the world, uh, frankly. And uh, he proposes a society uh, that has an absence of government, but there will be institutions in that place to provide goods and services. Uh, Stefan, you've talked about like um, DROs, which are dispute resolution organizations. Can you explain that concept to our audience? Sure. I think it's a, it's a great question. And I think that 
we really want to make sure in a society that we recognize that not everyone is going to be good, not everyone is going to be honest, not everyone is going to be virtuous. And so we do need ways of helping people to resolve disputes. Uh, if, if we have a dispute in business, if we have, if I commit a property crime or something like that, we do need to find ways of resolving uh, disputes. So the way that I theorize, and nobody knows for sure, but it's my sort of theoretical approach, is uh, I have created entities uh, called dispute resolution organizations or DROs. And the purpose of DROs is that if you and I enter into a contract, then we'll put aside a half a percentage point or something of the value of our contract to say, if you and I have a dispute about our contract, we're going to arbitrate according to this third party, this third party who has a good reputation for wise and King Solomon-style decisions and judgments, and we agree to defer to this. So if, if, if you disagree with something I do in the contract, we agree to go to this third party. And the third parties would all be competing for the most efficient and the most sensible and the most wise and the cheapest ways of resolving conflicts between people. Well, I think that's the point. People don't see how you could achieve objectivity on the free market. Well, it seems to me like um, a private you know, justice system, uh, people trying to sell their services as an arbitration system, they would strive for reputation for being the most fair. If you have a reputation for favoring certain industry over another, you're not going to get any customers. You have two parties need to agree, and it's, and it's been like that in the past. I mean, law wasn't always you know, linked to the government. Exactly. No, that's right. Like, like all good things, the government has taken it over and made a, mess, made a mess out of it. And these DROs would all work together uh, and they would help resolve even international disputes. And we know that because, of course, uh, Internet service providers exchange data all the time, which is how the Internet works. Cell phone providers will carry each other's signals in return for a fee. So you would end up with a very interconnected and voluntary and market-driven and peaceful way of resolving disputes. As far as crime goes, well, I think we all recognize that like medicine, crime is far better served by prevention than it is by cure. Unfortunately, the system that we have right now does not profit from prevention. It only profits uh, from, from cure. So to take some silly examples, wouldn't it be kind of cool to have uh, a voice-activated car or a voice-activated television set so that if uh, somebody stole it, they couldn't use it? I mean, that would be one way of preventing crime rather than, but, but of course, the existing system doesn't do that. It, the cops did not invent those, I did, those tags that you get on clothing. Uh, they didn't invent uh, uh, night vision cameras. Uh, they didn't invent uh, credit cards. They didn't invent uh, Interact or the, the bank cards, all of which allow you to not carry cash and therefore be less susceptible to robbery. These things were all invented and propagated by the private sector, by the free market. And if we took the lid of government off the creative genius of the species as far as solving problems of crime and dispute resolution, there's literally no telling how far it would go in terms of rendering criminals, uh, rendering the life of crime unprofitable. And I mean <laughs> the private life of crime, not the public life of crime, <laughs> which is a whole different matter. But uh, there's, no, there's no telling how far we could go because we can look at the incredible ways that um, the, the private sector has served for secure, has served security, uh, to the point here in Canada, for a very small fee every month, you get uh, people who will monitor your house and, and you, you know, they will send a guy over if there's anything amiss. Uh, and so all of these things could occur. But right now, because people are spending so much money through force on government non-solutions, uh, there's just no room for, for this kind of stuff to grow. But it would grow even further than it has. And we would end up with a society where crime would be prevented, where disputes would be very simple and cheap to, to operate in. And if people didn't uh, obey 
the contracts that they'd signed with these third parties, the third parties would just mark them down like the same way you get a bad credit report. You Then your life would become more expensive and more difficult and fewer people would want to deal with you until you had successfully addressed any transgressions that had occurred for you. And so I think that's really, really important to understand. To participate in an economic system requires that people want to deal with you. And if you continually break your contracts, you're going to find it very hard, if not impossible, to buy a house, to buy groceries, to buy a car, to buy gasoline, because people are just going to say, this guy breaks every contract he walks into, so I don't want to deal with him. It's really not going to be worth anybody's effort to, to stop breaking their contracts. Uh, and so that's how I theorize, and there's no way to know for sure, but that's how theoretically it could really work in a, in a free society. yeah. But I mean, I think this whole philosophy, voluntarism, anarchism, whatever, basically recognizes the fact that human beings are capable of solving their own problems without a bayonet prod in the back, without the use of force. We can solve our problems. I mean, that's probably how human society developed in the first place, was without force. I mean, frankly, if the state had been present at the inception of the human race, we probably would have never gotten out of the caves. But, Sorry, I just want to, I think, I think that's half the equation. It's true that we can, we, uh, we can solve problems without a bayonet. I think it's equally true and important to say we can't solve problems with the bayonet, right? So we can see this right now. Governments are struggling because the recession has cut their taxable income. They have massive debts, massive deficits. They're underfunded on their pension schemes. I mean, it's crazy, right? Now, what can governments do under the current situation? Well, not much. They can't raise taxes because the economy's already in the tank. They can't cut spending because they're, they have these fixed contracts. And if they cut spending, it doesn't really help. Let's say they fire 10,000 workers. Well, those 10,000 workers just go unemployment insurance and the government hasn't saved a dime. In fact, it's cost them more money because they also have to give these big severance packages. So not only can we solve problems without the bayonet, we literally can't solve problems when we use the bayonet to move people and resources around in society like so many domesticated animals. Well, I think that's what kind of gets people depressed is they see that there's nothing government can do. I mean, frankly, I mean, are we just waiting for total massive epic failure to, it seems inevitable. I mean, there's, there's nothing left. There's not another bubble to inflate. They, I mean, what was it? Uh, uh, they've already sold off all of the land and they've uh, mortgaged us as, as, as collateral, as, as, uh, you know, our very being, you know, that's, that's what they're selling now. You know, that's one of, that, that was one of the, I think, seven's most powerful videos is the, is the money that's being sold. You know, it, it's you. It's our labor, our future labor to pay off the debt. Yeah, the government that the government is supposed to respect you as a citizen is selling you off to the Japanese and the Chinese. I mean, they're selling your kids off. I mean, they have about as much allegiance to you as a farmer does to his cows. Not even. Uh, so I think that's important. There is. I don't think there's going to be any catastrophic meltdown. I mean, this isn't the end of the Roman Empire because we have this communi amazing communications technology that allows us to have these kinds of conversations uh, that were unprecedented. These unprecedented for people to be able to talk like this throughout history. It was impossible for that to occur. Uh, the house are all still going to be standing. There'll still be roads. There'll still be cars. There'll still be uh, shopping stores and so on. There will be a transition uh, out of the existing system over time, but it's not going to be, uh, you know, Mad Max uh, hunting rats in the sewers or anything like that. It, it's going to be a more gentle transition because we have much better communications than were ever possible at any time throughout history. So uh, the truth about the situation can spread, spread more rapidly. And people are incredibly ingenious when it comes to uh, uh, changes in society that are 
are well communicated, clearly explained, well understood, uh, they will be able to find substitutions and alternate ways of getting things done very quickly. And then we'll look back and say, what were we so scared of? We should have done this, you know, should have done this. It's like when you finally quit smoking or whatever. It's like, oh, why didn't I do this a long time ago, right? Well, that it would be chaotic unless you had an alternate currency. The, the people need a way to engage in commerce. And now whether that currency is gold or silver or nails or eggshells or whatever it is, uh, if we lose our it's currency... The tally stick. The tally stick, that's right. I learned about that earlier. <laughs> but if, if you don't have a currency that people can go to, there is going to be immediate chaos. I'm sorry. People look to the government for that help. They've been nursed by the state their entire life. So, Stefan, do you think that, I mean, so many people have been programmed since birth to equate the state with morality and the, and the government with everything that they can do or are allowed to do. If there is some kind of failure, do you, you don't think there's going to be, you know, people are just so unaware of the alternatives. You don't think there'll be chaos that way? Or do you think that survival, I mean, survival will prod our uh, transition to a libertopian society. Or are they just going to reset the state and, and you know, reset the, the fiat money system with a new currency that, that doesn't have all the martial law? I, you know, I mean, it seems like the only, the only thing that they know to do is use force. Right. They come in with their costumes and guns like they always do. That, look, that's very true, for sure. And there's no way, I think, of, of telling which way it's going to go. I, I do think that conversations like this are very, very important in helping people. If you, if you think that society is failing because we don't have enough government, then things will go very badly indeed. If people finally understand that we're failing because we're using force to solve problems, which as everybody learned at the kindergarten, uh, you know, the kitty floor and the mats and uh, among the juice boxes and half-eaten glue sticks, we were all told, don't use force, don't hit, don't push, don't steal, don't trip, don't uh, punch. Uh, we were all told that, and uh, that's actually that's a, that's a good ethic to live by, is don't use force to take other kids' toys, don't use force to get what you want, once people connect that basic kindergarten morality with the massive edifice of the modern state, then it'll be like, oh, right. Because if everybody had been allowed to steal in my kindergarten class, it would have gone completely chaotic and crazy. And that's exactly what's happening with society at the moment. This is a civil war with the government as the arbitrator, right? The government herds money back and forth between its special interest groups uh, from the body politic. And so it's, it is a civil war, but it's just restrained because people are obedient to the, the gang with the most guns. There's no way to tell exactly what... I'm sorry about that. Um, no, no hopefully we as a remnant can educate our fellow citizens when things do start to crumble. Um, when the government comes in and offers a big, strong man solution, we can reach out and say, no, that's not what we want to do. We as individuals can come up with solutions on our own without averting back to the same problem in the first place. I think for the first time in many generations that, that people are, are open to this idea now. Welcome back to Radio Free Oklahoma on the Rule of Law Radio Network. That's RadioFreeOklahoma.net and RuleOfLawRadio.com. We're speaking tonight with Stephen Molyneux. You can check out his website at FreeDomainRadio.com. Uh, you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your site and, and what you offer? Sure. Sure, it's uh, it's uh, a um, a podcast uh, primarily. That's sort of my major engine of blathering, uh, and uh, I do have a video channel as well. Uh, and um, 
Uh, I have a whole bunch of free books for people who are interested in exploring or sharing the ideas of a uh, sort of peaceful and voluntary society. And it is really my sort of major mission uh, in, in my life. That's really what I'm focused on uh, ever since I started doing this. I went full time about three years ago. And before that, I was doing it for a couple of years part time. It's just to, to really try and help people to understand that we need to evaluate how society should run, not according to historical inertia, you know, the stuff that was done before, the stuff that was done before, uh, but to really look at it from principles upwards, from like what is good, what is virtuous, what is true, what is right, what is noble, and then we can build a society from that. I always say to people who are interested in, oh, we need a government, it's like you, you, people, re they have to realize that the ancient Egyptians 5,000 years ago had a government. We don't use anything from ancient Egypt anymore. Like we don't use their medicine, we don't use their physics, we don't use their mathematics. Are we still going to use their form of social organization 5,000 years later? It really is okay for us to look at some possible alternatives to the way things have just been done in the past. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> go and look up some Egyptian remedies for, I don't know, a stomachache, which I think involves swallowing live snakes and say, yay, that's gonna be a great way for me to solve this problem because it makes about as much sense to create a state. We say, oh, we need a state to protect our property. But the state takes 50% of your property and doesn't even guarantee you any protection. I mean, if I proposed that as a system out of the blue, people would say it's insane. And we need to look at the social institutions we have from the clear eyes of philosophy and objectivity, not just staring at it, rolling towards us through history, like Indiana Jones with that big ball at the beginning of the first one. You know, we just need to sort of start with a clean slate and designing society according to rational principles rather than just stuff that has flowed down through history. Exactly. And you mentioned before, you know, there, there have been human societies that have uh, survived successfully without uh, state enforcement monopoly on, you know, what, what the government is. Uh, are there any examples that you can name off? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, Iceland went for a couple of hundred years without any government whatsoever for uh, within um, in ancient Ireland. It was almost a thousand years without a government. Uh, and people say, well, a thousand years, but then they fell to another government. It's like, but that's not going to happen because with nuclear weapons these days, any state, the society would just have one or two nuclear weapons. No nuclear power has ever been invaded uh, because the deterrent is just so great. So that's not really an issue anymore. And people say, well, a thousand years, it's not forever, but it's a lot better than America is doing at the moment. So uh, I think there, there are certainly, even within America, in Pennsylvania, for uh, a number, a generation or two, there was a, a part of Pennsylvania with no government whatsoever. And they, oh, yeah. they, they didn't want a government, and they resisted a government coming in because everything was working just beautifully. It's just, we just led that way, but there's actually no empirical evidence for the long-term value of a government and tons of empirical evidence that it is a slow and then not so slow kind of poison. Yeah, as I recall, uh, prior to the American Revolution and on some of the outskirts of the colonies, there was no functioning government because they kind of stopped paying the British and the British stopped going in there, and, but they didn't want to resurrect a, com a competing government to antagonize the British, so they just conducted their, fair, their affairs in a voluntarist manner. Uh, they have, and in fact, I think it was Pennsylvania that actually they convened a kind of a kind of a Congress for the outlying districts that stopped meeting after the first year because it was totally unnecessary. They were able to conduct their affairs uh, mutually well without um, without a so-called government. It is possible. It's not a pipe dream. We're not utopian. I hate that label. You're just being utopian. We're we're not being utopian by recognizing that there are evil people out there and that we should not give them a monopoly of power. I think it's recognizing capacity for both 
good and evil and accommodating both and trying to incentivize good behavior instead of um, trying to force morality down people's throats through force, which as any study, student of psychology or philosophy knows that you cannot force morality, you rob it of its value. It's no longer morality. It has to come from within. I, I can't disagree with anything you're saying, so please keep going. <laughs> Take it away, brother. Testify. Go ahead. All right. It's not like laws put morals in the person. The morals are in the person. Laws don't create that. Well, and here in Oklahoma, you know, I, I have a, a hard time talking with folks that are, you know, particularly religious, saying, you know, I say that, that you know, religion doesn't have the monopoly on morality, you know. And and that was a, even a, a big step for me, you know, uh, to, to understand what are my values. I didn't, I mean, I, the way I was, uh, you know, raised in government schools, you know, uh, what what is honor? What what are my values? What are my principles? You know, you're not taught how to live. You're taught how to obey, how to regurgitate information on command, and and not not think. You're not taught philosophy, and I think that's what's great about uh, Stefan Molyneux is that it's. It's all rooted in philosophy, which is one of my, you know, I'm not a hardcore student by any means, but I like to read philosophy. I like its principles. I like to become more proficient in its study. And um, it's based upon doing the right thing. I mean, it's you know, basically just, like I said before, recognizing the capacity for human good and evil and taking that into account rather than avoiding the subject and hoping, putting faith that this monolith that we erect will behave in a moral and correct manner despite every all evidence to the contrary right and and uh, the, the the two ways that people have approached the problem of making people good or trying to get people to be good throughout history there's there's two ways that people have done it the first is they threaten you and the second is they punish you uh, and, and that's the sum total of of our attempt to create a virtuous world i mean think back to public school right you better do your homework or there are going to be severe consequences young man or young lady and then if you don't do your homework, you get punished. Uh, you get detention or you get, I mean, when I was a kid, you get caned or whatever, right? So this is how people do it is they threaten you and the government does it too. You better pay your taxes or bad things are going to happen. And then if you don't, after a while, lo and behold, bad things happen. The same thing happens in religion. They say if you're bad, then you're going to go to hell. You're going to, we're going to threaten you. And then, you know, God sends you to hell after you're dead and, and that's your punishment. And so threatening and punishing people is is the sole way that we seem to have found to try and make people good. But as you say, when you're threatening and punishing people, you're not creating virtue. You're just creating fear and obedience. It's not the same well, as virtue. And the, and the contradictory nature of it, you know, uh, you know, don't hit your sister, smack, or, you know, murder's wrong, but now go over here and kill these brown people in this other country. You know, yeah, if you wear this green here, costume, yeah. good over here. Yeah. No, and I think every kid has that same... I remember thinking that same thing when I was a kid and learning about the war. It's just like, well, so this guy kills some German tourist in London. He goes to jail, or I guess way back in the day he would get, um, he would get hanged or something. But you put him in a green costume in France, suddenly he gets a medal and a pension. Like, I mean, that stuff, it, it doesn't make any sense. And we, we need to start really examining these things and not just waving, the way, waving them away by saying, well, he's in the army as if that answers anything. It doesn't. He's still the same guy. He's just got a different outfit on. I don't get to fly when I put a Superman costume on for Halloween or my special date nights with my wife. I don't get to fly when I put on particular costumes. And I don't get to change my moral nature just because I put on a blue or a green costume. Nothing changes about me as a human being other than my fabric. 
And we need to start applying more strict and general moral rules to people and not creating these special categories called cops or, or soldiers or governments or prison guards. They're still just people subject to the same universal moral rules as everybody else. Everything that we create based on costumes is the most ridiculous kind of ethical illusion. And we need to start outgrowing these, these, these dress-up games of ethics that we currently are addicted to as societies. Exactly. You know, people put on a uniform or a costume, however you call it, and they are robbed of any kind of moral judgment on what they do. Literally, I mean, they can, they can commit murder, they can steal, they can rob, they can lie, and uh, I'm just doing what I'm told. Or, you know, we've got a, a recent incident here you know, in, in the United States where uh, they, they kicked in the door of this house, uh, sit in, uh, threw in an incendiary, caught the, this little seven-year-old girl on fire, and then shot her through the neck. You know, uh, and they, there wasn't even a criminal in the house. You know, I mean, it wasn't even a house that... That that they they were just they were hitting several at once, you know. But now nothing's happening to those guys, you know. That was that was just uh, you know they were following policy and it was an accident, you know. We're oops, we're sorry. Then the, the guy, the cop that got his neighbor's cat and shot it, and he got fired, you know. And he's in trouble, you know. That that just shows what what they value a human life, you know. It's not it, they they don't there's no value to it to them, you know. We were dehumanized to the point. That they don't. I mean, we're lower than, than a, a pet cat. Well, the state corrupts everything it touches. It de, it's, de, it's not human. It dehumanizes it humanizes everything. And we are human. That is our right. That is our birthright. Our, I mean, uh, at the very least, we, we have the right to be human. And I think uh, that's something that the such an evil of this monopoly of force, this government, the state, is that it dehumanizes us, robs us of our capacity for to. To do the right thing. I mean, it's, it's just so corrupting. It engenders so much corruption, such an albatross around our necks. And I really hope that we are in a transition period. I hope my children can live in a society where they can be human without having to, to live in fear. There's uh, an old, um, I can't remember which religion it is, but it's an old cosmological view that says that the earth is uh, a sorcerer that's sitting on the, the, the back of an elephant, which is sitting on the back of something else, which is standing on a turtle. And someone said, well, what's underneath the turtle? And the priest said, no, 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 it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> because, you know, because they couldn't. And, and it's the same thing. You know, we, we have this problem in society where we say, well, there are bad people, so we need to create the police or we need to create the government or the jails or the, 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 the army or whatever. And it's like, OK, so there are bad people in society. Won't they also be in the police uh, and in the government and so on. So who, if we need this, this control to watch these bad people, who is going to watch those who is watching the bad people? Who is going to watch the watchers? It's a problem that has never been solved in any political system. You, if you think that you're just scared of your fellow citizens to the point where you need to appoint a bunch of people with guns to take, well, who's going to stop them from doing you harm or doing you wrong? If you're so scared of your fellow citizens that you're going to cede your power to a bunch of guys in blue or green uniforms, who's going to watch those guys? And everybody well, just said that experience with that. There I is no answer. Taking, uh, an excessive use of force, and you know they turned on me, and I got uh, I got beaten up, kidnapped, uh, you know, because I was trying to videotape, you know, their abuse. You know, I was watching the watchers, and you know, luckily in Oklahoma, we're a uh, single consent state. You know, some other states are getting them for wiretapping laws. You know, right. because they video they had the audacity to videotape a police officer. Right, right. So, so because there is no answer, there is no rational answer any more than there is what's underneath the turtle. There's no rational answer to the question, who will watch the watchers? So we can't have any watchers. We can only have voluntary, hopefully peaceful and, you know, reasonable, uh, non 
compliance punishments if you don't, but it all has to be voluntary. It all has to be without a central coercive monopoly of power that dwarfs any other human institution with its military prowess. We can't find a way to watch the watchers. It is an infinite regression problem. And so because there's no way to watch the watchers, we simply have to accept that there will be some risks, there will be some problems in a state and society. It's not perfect. It's not utopia, but it will be sustainable. It will be an ever-increasingly peaceful society. And most importantly, it's achievable. Exactly. And I think that's a wonderful way to wrap up this interview. Uh, thank you very much, Stefan Molyneux at FreedomainRadio.com. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time to, to visit with us. Thanks for the chat. It was a great fun. Thank you.